And Lord, that is the prayer of our heart, that we would be useful to you. We know that you want to lead us, and we know that you used your spirit to do that. And I pray that you would help each one of us to listen in daily living, because we never know when we have a divine appointment appointed to us. Many times we know that it can come at the most um, obscure times. But I would pray that you'd help us to listen to those moments and, and to know when we ought to minister, reach out, share truth, encourage all of those things. We're so thankful that you saved us, that you love us, uh, that you love us enough that you sent your only son to die for us. A penalty that we otherwise could not pay. Thank you so much. And I pray that you'd help us to be those ambassadors that are doing your work because we know that people are dying and they're going to hell unless you intervene. So we pray and we ask and we plead that you would use us to do that. So we pray that you would help us in that. We look forward to looking in, into your word today because we know that's what brings life change, true change, long-lasting change. And so we, we invite you um, to speak to us today. So we pray that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. We have been so blessed as a ministry. And one of the ways we've been blessed in these days is that we have relationships beyond the walls of this church, within the Willamette Valley, the state, and also nationally. And so for our summer series, it's such a treat to be able to have guests come and teach. Uh, and so we uh, hope that you've already been enjoying the summer series. This morning, uh, we have Dr. Jeremy Lellick. He is the president of the American, uh, the, the Association for Biblical Counseling in America. And... Um, and he's also the founder of Metroplex Counseling Center, and he's a practicing uh, counselor, licensed therapist, but he is a biblicist. And we have been so pleased to be able to meet so many other individuals as part of ABC that has been able to help us further develop the ministry here. And so we want to thank him in advance for being here with us and his assistant, Ronnie. If please give him a hand. Jeremy. I'm not going to take up any more of your time. You need to just get up here and share the word. Let me pray with you. All right, thank you. Lord, thank you for this time that you would give Jeremy clarity of thought, an opportunity to share on his heart from your word, and that you would continue to have a, a unity of the spirit in the bond of peace as many uh, individuals have come now this summer series to address Second uh, Peter and that you would give us an opportunity to hear his take from a counselor's perspective, from a husband's perspective, a father. Uh, and a leader within the counseling, biblical counseling ministry internationally. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. It is more than an honor and privilege to be here today, and I want to thank um, Pastor Justin Green and Carl and Laura uh, for the kind invitation to be with such wonderful people. And just to see the work that this church is doing in the realm of discipleship and biblical counseling warms my heart and it's just uh, a joy to see that people are stepping into the trenches with those who are struggling and hurting. Um, let's open up to Second Peter 1 verses 5 through 6 and my task is to talk about perseverance this morning. Second Peter 1 verses 5 and 6 says this, for this very reason Make every effort 
to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. So here it says steadfastness, same thing as perseverance. And we're going to dig into that. But let, let me open in prayer very quickly and, and we'll jump right in. Father, we are honored to be here this morning. And it is my prayer that your spirit would open our ears and our hearts to hear what you would have us hear. I pray for every heart here, Lord. You know the needs, you know the struggles that are represented, and I pray that something that is said today would reach into those struggles and breathe hope. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. So when we talk about perseverance or when we talk about anything as it regards our walk with God, I think it's always very, very important for us as believers to ask the question, why? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing as a believer? Why? What is my ultimate why for obeying God? What is my ultimate why for persevering in my life and in self-control and in seeking to supplement uh, my perseverance with godliness? What is my ultimate why? We might use this word telos. It just tells us the, the, the final reason for why we choose to do the things that we do. And sometimes when, when people come to passages like this, and I, I do a lot of counseling, and when people come to a passage like this where they are being exhorted to do something, very often I, I run into some pitfalls as to why individuals are doing something in their Christian life. Things like this, maybe I need to persevere as Peter has called me to so that I can acquire a further acceptance by God. If I can just persevere in my Christian walk and add to my perseverance godliness, then maybe that puts me just one step closer to being approved and accepted by this holy God that I say I serve. That's, that's a pitfall that I often see in the Christian life. Or maybe I've wrestled with sin, or maybe I've committed this huge sin that the church would look down on, and I, I wrestle with shame, and I wrestle with a, a sense of guilt. So my ultimate why of stepping into this perseverance is to somehow offer penance for this horrible thing that I've committed against the, a holy God. That sometimes, in some way, my, my desire to obey by persevering, by pursuing godliness, is a form of penance in my life. It's a way to moderate my sense of guilt. It's me looking at my own works and thinking that, that it's, it's maybe Jesus plus my perseverance that will ultimately find approval and acceptance by God. And sadly, in our day, uh, some people obey because they've been taught in certain places and in certain churches that doing so will give them some type of monetary or material reward. Give God money and he'll bless you with material things. And those are pitfalls that we want to shy away from. Those are pitfalls that rob the gospel and Christ of his glory in what he has accomplished on the cross. And so I want to provide a context as we, as we dive into this idea of perseverance. I, I really think it's important for us to develop a context that will give us a, a biblically-centered, gospel-oriented why. 
as to our perseverance. So if you were to come into me and you were wrestling with some form of uh, trauma um, and anxiety and it was overwhelming you and you could not, you cannot hardly even function in your daily life. And I spend an hour with you and I hear your story and I hear of the traumatic events that you've experienced. And in our first meeting, I recommend to you a book and I, I ask you to go read this book. Take the next couple of three weeks. I want you to go read this book and I want you to begin to uh, pull out themes that you resonate with in this book and how they apply to your particular life. And let's say you go home and on one night you, you pick this book up that I've given you and you turn to a random page, page 75, and you read the sentence, Corey ran down the street. And then you close the book and you say to yourself, my counselor needs to find a new job. <laughs> what in the world does some woman running down the street have to do with my trauma? But if that's what you did, you would have made a grave mistake because you would, would have interpreted the book, The Hiding Place, the story of Corrie ten Boone, who, who her and her family were rescuing Jews during World War II and they were put in Nazi concentration camps and all of them died and Corrie was supernaturally released and, and worked... Uh, the rest of her life serving God in ministry. But the mistake that you would have made is you would have, you would have interpret, by interpreting that whole amazing, miraculous story on one sentence, you would have missed the story. And when we begin to let our lives become the story, then we miss the real story. Every person's life, your life experiences, the good, the bad, the difficult, even the struggles with sin, your story is a sentence in a much greater, beautiful, divine story. And so I want, and in order for us to approach this idea of persevering and pursuing godliness, we have to do it in the context of the whole story or less we'll miss the story. So I want to give just a few elements of this story as, as we begin. And I think we have to start in 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4 to begin to get somewhat of a glimpse of this story, that there's more going on that Peter's calling us to than simply persevering or adding to perseverance godliness and brotherly love. There's more to it going on. And he says this in verse 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You see, he's giving us a glimpse into something bigger than our efforts, something bigger than our decisions. This idea that his divine power has actually granted to me everything that I need for this life and godliness that he is calling me to in the verses that follow. How how do I uh, live this life of godliness through this power? Through the knowledge of him who called us. Through the knowledge of him who called us. For what purpose? For what purpose is, are we to persevere in our faith? To his own glory and excellence. He's beginning to, to cause us to come face to face with the transcendent. That this idea of persevering in life is much bigger than this moment. It touches eternity. It touches the glory and excellence of God himself. Living for the glory of God means to live a life with our hearts being more and more uh, 
expanding in our gratitude, increasingly recognizing all that God provides in all of life. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, leaves nothing to the mundane. Everything that we engage in as Christians is touching the transcendent. And Paul said this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Things that we think are mundane, just daily tasks, at the end of the day, they're touching something much bigger. And that's what he's pointing us to here. For what purpose? To his own glory and excellence. And this is the basis by which he has granted to us his very great promises. Why has he given us these promises? So that through them you may become partakers of this divine nature. I look at that as true healing of the soul, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So that's the context in which Paul is calling us to persevere. This is the context. This is the larger story outlined by Peter so that Christians may experientially, day by day, become that which they existentially are, all, are already to the praise and glory of God. See, in one sense, you are already holy and righteous. Your new self, united in Christ, robed in his righteousness. In one regard, we can say that in this moment, or in the worst moment of your day, when maybe you're even falling towards sin, we can say in one regard, you're as holy and perfect in that moment as you'll be the day you stand in front of God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, For by a single offering, he has already perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there's a, there's, a, there's a not yet and an already. I'm already holy. I'm already righteous. I've, I've been given this new self in Christ. And now it's my call to live out of that new, new self and become existentially in this moment who God has already made me to be. The making every effort to which Peter is calling us is part of a much more glorious narrative than personal self-improvement or methods to alleviate a sense of personal guilt. Rather, Peter is providing wisdom that is intended to facilitate in our lives and, and our inner beings a process that moves us towards our ultimate design, creatures that more and more reflect the beauty, glory, and holiness of Jesus in the totality of our lives and beings. That's what this perseverance is all about. It's not about being a good Christian. It's not about being a good person. It's about being transformed at our, at our very core so that we, we reflect glory itself, the person of Christ. If you're having marriage struggles this morning, I want you to tell you that those struggles are not the main story. They are sentences in the larger story. If you're wrestling with depression or anxiety, that depression and anxiety and your struggle to get out of bed every day is not the story. It's, it's a sentence in a much bigger story. If you wrestle with lust issues or anger this morning, those are not the focal points of the story. They are parts of the story that point to a much greater divine narrative of redemption. And this story started in the mind of God before the foundations of the world. And it began with creation. It was actuated from his mind at creation. Part of the story is the fall. And part of the story in which we as Christians are getting to live out day by day is the theme of redemption. Amen. 
And we have a God who's committed to us in that theme of redemption. So this isn't an idea of tightening up your belt and pulling up your bootstraps and getting your act together. It's a reality of learning the faithfulness of a holy God to get you where he's calling you to be. So just like going home and reading one sentence out of a book and interpreting the whole book on that one sentence misses the story, so is making our lives the story missing the main story. So what are some elements of this story? Element one, God is sovereign. God is in control. I think it's R.C. Sproul who said, if there's one rogue atom in the universe that is operating autonomously outside of God's control, then God is not sovereign. Every element of this universe is in his control. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the purpose of his will. When someone walks into me and they've just committed adultery and they're repentant, I don't have to panic that God is in the heavens panicking. Because even that atrocity, God will use to bring about his glory in a repentant heart. Some of the most beautiful stories that have encouraged my faith are working with couples just like that who humbled themselves before the Lord and watched God literally resurrect a dead marriage back to life that sings to his praise. And as I watch people's faith in that story grow, it's powerful. It's real. It brings the gospel down to the street level where we all live. Within this story, according to this passage in Ephesians, we as Christians have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We've received without merit the mercy of God. We stand day by day in a place of justification, being accepted by God. We are promised that in union with Christ, we bear his righteousness. The promise of God's faithfulness to work in our hearts no matter where we find ourselves, that he will complete this story of redemption that he alone initiated in our hearts. We reside in this divine story as a people chosen in him before the foundation of the world. There's this wonderful passage in John 6 where Jesus is speaking and I'll just paraphrase here, but he said, all the Father has given me, they will come to me. Eternity passed. All the Father's given me, they're going to come to me. And those who come to me, I will never drive away, but I will hold them until I come again. This divine story, we were, we were chosen before the foundations of the world, and we are promised that our Redeemer, the one who gave his life for us, is going to hold us through the ups and the downs, the thicks and the thins, he's going to hold us and accomplish his perfect work in our lives. Every detail of God's sovereignly penned story is working out according to the perfect purposes of his eternal decrees. We're living in a story that was birthed out of the mind of God before the foundations of the world were formed. 
The horizontal experiences of life are always connected to the vertical realities of transcendent purpose. I said that a moment ago. Everything we're experiencing here in the horizontal is always connected to the vertical. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9. Paul gives us a really good example just experientially what this looks like. They had been through some terrible suffering uh, to the point they thought life was over. And he said this in uh, verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 1, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia, for we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Okay, real life experience. Right? Paul was going through some terrible things. He wasn't even sure if, if he was going to make it. And so he's describing the realities of the horizontal, but he immediately connects it to, the, to the, the vertical. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Amen. And Paul is telling us that every trial that he went through in this journey was, had transcendent purpose in that God was seeking to increase his faith as an apostle. He knew that his struggles were arduous, but they were not meaningless. God was at work. And the same is so for us. Charles Spurgeon says this, There is not an attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that the sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. Element two of this story is that God's love is what initiated our entrance into this beautiful narrative. So God is sovereign, but it was also his love that initiated us into this story. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just going to read the first five verses. And as a counselor, especially when I'm working with Christians, uh, this is, in my view, as a, as a believer, the most miraculous miracle of transformation a human being will ever experience in their lives. So if you're wrestling with something in your heart today and you think that you're never going to be able to overcome that. You're never going to be able to get over the hump. I want you to always anchor the process of your change and the process of your sanctification in the reality of what I'm about to read because it shows us that, that God miraculously changes hearts. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this sinful world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he's telling us we were dead. That there, if, if you are a Christian in this room, there was a time in your life when your heart was dead. Dead means dead. It doesn't mean that you were floating at the top of the water looking for a life raft to save you. It means you were face down floating in the water dead. But verse 4, But God, rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. So God, because of his mercy and his love for us, caused our, our hearts to go from this dead piece of stone to a heart of flesh that had the, the capacity to now finally search for the true God of Scripture. Element three, God often, not always, I don't want to paint a grim picture of Christianity. God works in every detail. He works in the blessings. He works in the joys. He works in the moments of bliss. But also, God often accomplishes his perfect purposes through suffering. And in the, the passage in Peter that we started with, it's really here in this realm of suffering that perseverance is, is targeted. And I think one of the most powerful tools that the enemy has used against humanity is to convince people uh, that if suffering is present, neither God, either God is not good or he doesn't really care. That's what our culture has left us with as it regards uh, suffering. I remember several years ago, um, my sister and her husband, they were older, but they were still trying to have children. And uh, they were able to conceive it was a joyous time, but I remember about three months into that, I walked into my office, and my sister answers the phones there at the counseling center, and I walked in my office, and her hands, her face was, were in her hands. She was trembling. She was sobbing. And my heart sank because I just knew something was wrong. And through tears, she looked at me and said the geneticist had just called, and her son within her womb was diagnosed with trisomy 18. And trisomy 18 is a genetic disorder, especially for males. They will live 8 to 10 minutes after they're born. Doctors encouraged her to abort. She refused to do that. And for the next six months, I watched my sister carry this precious boy. And we prayed. We gathered people around, and we prayed, and we prayed. And on one Sunday... <clears throat> We get a call. My wife's a labor and delivery nurse. And Max was being born. And my wife was so sweet to go and help deliver this baby. Probably not a darker moment in my life to walk in a hospital room. And see my sister holding that, that dead baby. There was a season of suffering for our family. But I could anchor my hope in this reality that God works out his beautiful, glorious purposes in our suffering. And my brother-in-law, who has been an agnostic slash atheist for as long as I knew him for the first time, began to take a step towards the gospel. Amen. And just this past 4th of July, we, we had a two-hour two drive home, and all he wanted to talk to me about was the resurrection. Amen. And how is this possible? 
God works through suffering. And this is an element of the story. The psalmist in one, Psalm 119, 71 says this, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119, 71, It is good that I was afflicted. I'm sorry, Psalm 119, 67 and 68, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. You teach me your statutes through affliction. That is part of the story. John Piper says, Tragedies and calamities and horrific suffering and sinful atrocities should not take Christians off guard. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. They are foreseen by God and he foretold them for us to know. God sees them coming and does not intend to stop them. Therefore, it appears that they somehow fit into his glorious purposes. And if we for one minute give in to the lie of the enemy that our suffering is an indication of God's anger towards us, then what we do in that belief is completely disregard the complete finished work of Christ upon the cross where he took every ounce of the wrath of God for every sin that you and I have committed or ever will commit. Therefore, we will never taste the anger of God as his children, ever. Element four, our hearts are prone to wonder. Several, about a decade ago, several Princeton professors did this huge study across the country on spirituality and faith among teenagers. And what they discovered is that the current culture within the youth has a spirituality that is very much bent in on self. They termed it ultimately moral therapeutic deism, that somehow God is there for some therapeutic purposes for my happiness. Moral the, uh, Dr. Dr. Kendra Creasy Dean was one of the researchers, and she says this, moral therapeutic deism makes no pretense at changing lives. It is a low co commitment, compartmentalized set of attitudes aimed at meeting my needs and making me happy rather than bending my life into a pattern of love and obedience to God. Like the Spider-Man symbiote, moral therapeutic deism cannot exist on its own. It requires a host, and, the, and American Christianity has proven to be an exceptional gracious one. She concludes, we have forgotten that we are not here for ourselves, which has allowed self-focused spiritualities to put down roots in our soil. And if we're not careful, we can become prone to that as well. That's not just a cultural battle because there's a war going on within us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful and above, above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? All of our hearts in this room uh, can be susceptible to deception of the old ways, of the old flesh. It's no wonder that the, the writer in Proverbs 4, 23 says, Above everything in life, above everything, guard your heart. For, it, for everything you do flows from it. So part of the story is that our hearts, if we are not careful, even as committed believers, our hearts can be prone to wander from God. And even worse, our hearts can be prone to wander from the promises of the gospel in the midst of struggle. I love the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and this particular verse. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
And then finally, the main character of this story, as we've said, is not us. It's, it's Christ. And we're going to come back to that here in just a moment. So let's come back to perseverance. We have these themes of God's sovereignty, his love, the reality that there is. We live in a fallen world where suffering happens, that God uses suffering as a means to conform us into the image of Christ, and also that our hearts are prone to wonder from him if we are not careful. So coming back to 2 Peter 1, 5, 7 through 8, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness or perseverance, and perseverance or steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is this thing we call perseverance? It comes from the Greek word hupomone. And it is a characteristic of a person who has not swerved from his or her deliberate purpose and his or her loyalty to faith, even in the greatest trials and sufferings. One theologian says, it is the courageous acceptance of everything life can do to us and the transmuting or transforming of even the worst event into simply another step on the upward way. Taking all that happens and having the courage to face that, realizing that this is something God is using for his glorious purposes and to change me as his child. It is not merely a bearing up under difficult circumstances. So a lot of translations use the word patience, which is bearing up under tough circumstances. But it's not merely that. There's an aggression to this perseverance. It is a contending for something greater, which is why we need that context. What's the greater? It's contending for something greater. We can persevere for the sake of persevering, and in the end, if that's all we've got, it's pointless. But if we're persevering for something greater, it brings us great purpose. There was once a French philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre, and his whole uh, pursuit in philosophy was try to find the meaning of life, but to do so without God. To find an, a, an idea that human life actually does have purpose and actually does have meaning, and he tried his entire life to reach that conclusion and to verify that conclusion. But in the end of his life, he, his final statement about his own philosophy was this, no finite point has meaning without an infinite reference point. In other words, he had to turn his, whole back, his back on his whole life's work of philosophy because he realized without an infinite reference point, there is no purpose. And our infinite, if infinite reference point is a person, God and very specifically, the person of Jesus Christ. So we have macro moments of perseverance and we have micro moments of perseverance. And I, I just want to throw this out to you very quickly. Micro moments are those big, big moments, okay, where, where we, we can recognize that we've done something different. For example, uh, choosing to spend time in prayer and Bible reading instead of watching another show on television. So I'm tempted towards wasting an evening watching television, but instead I persevere and I go and, and I read scripture and I spend time with the Lord, which is beautiful. Or spending time with family rather than spending another hour on the iPad or cell phone. In choosing to invest myself into my family when really I feel the pressures of work and I've got some, some things I need to take care of, but rather than stay on the, the, the iPad or the computer, I'm going to go spend time with my family. 
Or calling a friend when tempted to binge drink in order to escape anxiety. That's, that's a form of perseverance. Okay? And all of those are very important in our Christian life, and we need to build in Christian disciplines to help us persevere, to help us add to that perseverance godliness. But there are also micro-moments of perseverance. And this is where I, as a counselor, spend a lot of my time working with others. These micro-moments of perseverance <clears throat> hone us in on the reality that life is worship. Every decision I make, every word I speak, every thought I hold on to is anchored in what I worship. It's anchored in what I worship. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that we are engaged in a loyalty war. There's a war of desires raging in my heart and in your heart every single day. Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So a great question to ask ourselves in persevering is, in looking at the micro aspects of perseverance, is what in this moment, as I'm about to, re uh, ready to respond to this situation, what is the treasure that's going to influence my response? Is it respect? Is it control? Is it affirmation? Is it escape? Is it approval? Is that my functional treasure? Is that what I put at the very center of my being that's going to drive what I'm about to do or what I'm about to say? Or is my treasure truly the God of Scripture? Is it my Redeemer? James says this, your fighting is driven by your functional God of the moment. He asked the question, why are you fighting? If you ask me that question in the midst of a fight with my wife, I'm going to blame her. I'm fighting because she's not being very nice. But James turns it around on us. He says, no, you're fighting because you're not getting what you want. And rather than giving up what you want to the glory of God, you covet and dig deeper in that desire until, until you come to a place where he says you commit spiritual adultery against the holy God. And those are the micro moments of perseverance where we're searching our hearts, persevering to ask the right questions about what's going on within me. Persevering to, to really get a grip and be honest with myself that there are some idolatrous things that I will tend to allow to control me to the point of sin. And we know when we have given in to an idol, when we allow ourselves to sin against another person if we don't get what we want. Or put it another way, we know that we are bowing to an idol if we give ourselves permission to not love God or another human being in the moment. No matter how difficult that moment might be. So in closing, I want to highlight again that, that the central figure of this entire story where we are called to persevere is Christ himself. Look at 2 Peter 1.8. It's how he concludes this whole thing. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, the things that we've been talking about, perseverance, virtue, godliness, brotherly love, if these qualities are yours and are increasing,